This podcast is brought to you by Enrollment Resources, Innovations in Enrollment Management. Learn more at enrollmentresources.com. Folks, uh, welcome to our talk. Um, uh, This is going to be an interesting conversation on um, marketing and admissions as it relates to regulations that uh, these um, lovely regulatory bodies have foisted upon our our schools as of late. And we're going to um, give you an overview on some of the uh, uh, some of the processes that um, are being foisted upon you. And we have a really an excellent uh, uh, panel uh, that will um, share some information at the end of our call. We'll make ourselves available to informally answer any questions, and um, we can follow up if you have any deeper conversations to have with anybody on our panel. So I'm going to start with uh, Chris Toluca. Chris is a uh, uh, known widely in the career school industry. He's a uh, uh, higher education lawyer, and uh, Chris has really has his fingers wrapped around um, all the kind of the legal permutations as it relates to regulation. We have uh, Jennifer Flood, and Jen, uh, she has a... Uh, Jen, I think you could better describe what you do. It's really, really an interesting hybrid between law and marketing. Sure. So um, I've been working in marketing companies and helping helping marketing companies and individual clients uh, for several years now, um, sort of navigating regulations and helping with um, an operational response. Um, and then we also um, search and monitor all of our clients marketing across the board so that they're not doing and saying things that can get them in trouble. Groovy. And we have Tom King, Tom King on the line. And um, Tom, he works with enrollment resources and he uh, leads our uh, process improvement division. He helps schools identify where there are gaps between where they are and best practice. Uh, and he has a thriving practice within the company. But he is here actually in his role as a former chief operating officer with a uh, large vocational school in the Midwest. And um, he has a real kind of a feel for the the school side of things. Uh, So, Tom, welcome. Good to be here. And uh, finally on our panel is... uh, uh, Shane Sparks, he's a co-founder of Enrollment Resources and my partner. My name is Greg Beeklejohn and I'll be facilitating today. So let's dive in, folks, and let's uh, give these folks some uh, some thoughts. So, hey, Shane, um, when I think of um, uh, all these uh, r- regulators, um, I think of, you know, when you're little kids and you used to play that game in the the playground about piling on and kids would really, you know, Pile on, pile on, keep piling on, and then eventually yeah, one the, kid would get it, get her ribs broken or something, you know? Yeah, the poor kid on the bottom, <laughs> the dog pile. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's the man. Where, where the schools are on the bottom, and the the federal government, state government, predators, and the God knows who else are all dog piling. I think it's an excellent metaphor. Yeah, Jen, so what was really? It? Yeah, so Jen. You had some insights in that regard. Um, you said that actually the it's crazy. It's crazier than just having multiple regulators hassling you. That a number of regulators have all different rules, sure. and some of them are are contradictory to one another. I don't understand that. <laughs> um, you know, I'm here at a conference today talking about um, all sorts of different agencies and how they're touching our uh, our school clients. It's it's definitely frustrating to navigate. And then when we pile on top of that, um, sort of the ACICS nightmare that's happening, um, we have people who have traditionally operated under one accreditor and their rules and and how they do things and now have to um, try to re-accredit under someone else. And we, I think we all need to understand from an operational point of view that each accreditor has different requirements for the way you create your admissions uh, policies. Um, the way you um, report, the, what you can and can't say on the phone to a student. Each accreditor has sort of a different checklist or a group of requirements 
Um, and then on top of that, you have to deal with TCPA. On top of that, you have to deal with the Department of Education. So you have lots of different people that you have to serve as you sort of navigate through the entire admissions and marketing process. So if you're trying to organize an organization, whether it's a you know, a not-for-profit or a proprietary mm-hmm. setup, <clears throat> if you're trying to create cross-departmental de- cross efficiencies, say, within your admissions department, but you've got multiple masters that are all pushing and pulling on the that admissions department, like that could get really unwieldy. It is. It is. And I know, and it's difficult for a lot of different people. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, and this happens to, to me sometimes too, we don't realize that we should be following um, a certain agency rule uh, when we're doing something. You know, this morning I was talking about some ADA things. Um, you know, there are just lots of different kinds of, uh, at rules that you have to, to keep tabs on. And generally your compliance department or your attorneys will know which one you're supposed to follow. But um, I think specifically from admissions, um, understanding and maintaining, uh, I try to stick with um, the biggest ones first, right? So you need to make sure that you're following the DOE's rules, absolutely, and your creditors. And usually people um, are pretty clear with those things. But then we yeah, add on top yeah. of it, um, you know, in the admissions process, we're making telephone calls from programs out of our computers yeah. to students. And so that, you know, then we're touching uh, the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. But, so but in, the broad, in, 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 yeah, in the broad picture, though, you know, there's all sorts of guys who are getting their, their punches in. Like, um, Chris, there's the, the whole thing with the state attorney general thing which is like really, I watch all that happening and it's like, you know, 20 odd attorney generals go after ITT or, you know, explain that craziness to the people on the call. Well, it, it's under the argument of consumer protection. And so what they're looking at, and that ties into a lot of with, you may be hearing about borrower defense to repayment and that's, uh, a whole set of regulations that there were draft regulations that came out or I should say proposed regulations this summer and we're literally as we sit here talking we're waiting any minute now for a new for a final set of regulations on that topic to come out and that stems from uh, really from the issues that came with the uh, the implosion of the Corinthian schools and the claims with a group of students getting together saying that they're not going to pay back their student loans because Corinthian lied to them, basically. And so mm-hmm. that's a reason why, that's a valid reason for the memorize for why they should not have to pay back their student loans. And that type of, that ability has existed for 20 plus years uh, in, the, in, in the code and the regulations. The problem is, or the challenge is, nobody ever used it. It was used like five times until Corinthian blew up. And since then, there's, you know, now there's, I believe it's over 23,000 claims that have been filed. Uh, with the federal government, and so they created these new regulations to try to uh, improve, to gain easier access for students to file these claims against schools, whether they're closed schools or a whole process there for schools that may be in existence. So the issue, so you know, and and throughout that process, again, it the, the attorney general's point of view has all been protecting school or protecting consumers, students against what they feel are predatory practices by proprietary institutions. That's, that's the way they frame yeah, the argument. Yeah, and, and, you know, that seems fair to me. Um, but i I, I got to tell you, Shane, like, um, it, part of me thinks about there's these, you know, these um, helicopter-parented millennials who get into a school and they find out it's tough and they're going to fail and they're they're not parented in such a way that failure is okay and then they rather than just sucking it up or failing they get amnesia and then they stay they go and they lean on some manufactured excuse and go back and try to sue to get their money back it seems like just a bunch of big whiny babies um shane is that too harsh are you there hello Hey, there you go. Uh, you know, I no, I don't think it's too harsh, I, but I don't think it matters because regardless of their motivations, you've got the situation where you have to figure out how do I 
stay on the right side of, like, how, how many levels, I'm just counting, so you've got the Department of Education, you've got the state, you've got the accreditors, you then have federal regulations such as the TCPA and the ADA, and I, I don't know if you've ever knows what that one is, maybe Jen, you can explain what it is. But, so, you know, I'm thinking, how do you tri triage all this stuff and where is the greatest risk and what are the ones you can kind of let slide a little bit, if any? I'd be really curious to know Chris and Jen and Tom's thoughts on that. Well, I'll tell you what it's like. It's like you're, you're in the wrong part of town and you, you go into a biker bar and there's, there's maybe one place to sit and everybody scares the crap out of you and, like, like where do you sit? Who do you hang out with? Who's your friend? Um, mm -hmm. I, again, a silly analogy, Jen. Um, tell, tell us what make what's going on here. Um, well, it's that's a tough question to answer. Like, you know, which one do you serve first? Um, I always pick the most expensive. <laughs> um, okay. Which I don't know if that's a good way to to look at it, but really, so any if one I of may just get jump out of control pretty quickly. So, Jen, if I could jump in, when you say the one that's the most expensive, what you're meaning to say is if something goes sideways, the one that could potentially hurt you the most? Is that what you're getting at? Well, sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, and, and if you think about it, and I, I think probably Chris may agree with me or may be able to speak a little bit more easily to it, um, any one of them can get out of control pretty quickly. Um, you know, if you have one student or 50 students who join a lawsuit against you, you know, or if you violate the TCPA a hundred times, I mean, we're talking about massive amounts of fines and legal liability. So it, it's hard to say, um, you know, pick the most ex expensive one first and focus on it. You really have to try to do all of it all of the time, which can get overwhelming. Yeah. So Chris, what are your thoughts on, on Jen's comments there? Well, I think that's, I mean, you do have to kind of triage it to figure out what, what's the biggest risk. Um, and it's something where why creating a compliance culture is so important. And one of the things, I do a lot of education programs for clients on different topics and all the stuff that we've, you've, you've talked about, we've, we've covered those issues because, and part of the training in that is to help your staff understand to be issue spotters, because to be an expert in this, I mean, I practice in this all the time, and there's, I'm learning new things every day because there's so much out there. But, elite, but the important thing is to be able to spot an issue, to know if you've got a student, you know, a, a deaf student who's, who, or a prospective student who's deaf and wants to come in to tour your facilities, to know, okay, there's an issue there. I have to understand what my, what my obligations are under ADA and what accommodations I need to make for the student, how I communicate that, and how I document that. You know, and the list goes on. So, you know, making sure that, that, that again, not everybody doesn't have to be an expert, but you have to have the resources and have the training and have people be able to know what the issues are so that they ask the question and then they do the follow-up to make sure that you're engaging your team, engaging your available resources to, to do the right thing and to protect you. So um, that's a really interesting point, and I'd like to turn the conversation to Tom King. Tom, um, we we both know that uh, sales training, that uh, people only retain 10% of their knowledge after a month. And um, so from a school's perspective, as Chris is saying, yeah, you got to teach people, train them. But the, the implementation or execution of flagging these issues, um, from what I can understand, has to be bulletproof. And I'm wondering if some kind of a systemized uh, force discipline might be a better way to go. Um, what are your thoughts from a, a school's perspective? Uh, well, absolutely, Greg. I mean, it's you know, as we said, there's a lot of different uh, areas, and it's kind of like you know, the speed limit's 55. We know that everybody doesn't quite drive 55, but. Uh, you know, we all we all need to know what the speed limit is, and sometimes, uh, you know, in our industry, the speed limit's not necessarily posted easily for everyone to see. Um, so it really begins with, a, you know, a culture of compliance at the school, having written documentation, going through that training, but as you said, they don't all retain it. So if it's not an ongoing assessment uh, or some type of a forced discipline uh, program at, at your school, 
uh, it, you know, people can start to, you know, hit 60, 70 miles an hour um, before they realize that, you know, that they're, that they're already there and all of a sudden they come over the hill and the, the policeman's right there. So uh, absolutely some type of a, at least a forced discipline uh, program, software, uh, anything that will lead that, uh, you know, keep, keeps the admissions people on, on the path, knowing what the boundaries are and uh, where they can go with it. Um, and giving I guess, them the I guess what's, what, yeah, I guess what's scary is that with an organization, um, you know, there's vicarious liability, Chris, uh, you know, like if a, an employee does something wrong, my understanding is their employer is held liable. Is, is that correct or? Can, yeah, it can be. Yeah. Yeah. That the employee, that the, that the, um, that the company would be, or the school would be liable for the actions of its employee. And that's where I guess, that's why training is, is, is so important in creating that culture. And for example, but you know, before I started my practice, I was in-house counsel and, and CFO for a group of uh, cosmetology schools. Uh, and so creating that culture from an education standpoint, but also knowing and building the rapport, since I was in charge of compliance, building the rapport with the admissions team leaders and the admissions reps at the school to know, if you've got anything, anything, call me. <laughs> it's okay. That's what I'm paid for. You know, And to build that relationship so they're comfortable with it, so they're not thinking that they have to solve the problems. And a lot of times, you know, human nature is if somebody else would take my problem, then, you know, great. If you've got that go-to person in your organization and you can cultivate that relationship, that may be one, you know, one, one way uh, among the other uh, ideas of, try, of, you know, of creating a culture so that you're able to spot those issues and to, to manage them uh, appropriately. Thank you. Great. Uh, I have a question. Yeah, fire away, Shane. Yeah, I'm curious from um, Chris's perspective, that compliance role, that in-house compliance role, is, is that, should that be a standalone position? Should that be combined with somebody who's got kind of C-level power? Um, is it a kind of walk the halls, making friends with the other managers to make sure they know to draw you in when needed? Like, I'm curious about, in, in practical terms, how how a person who is a compliance officer needs to be operating in their job to be effective to, you know, to create that culture and spot the problems before they emerge. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I, I think having the relationships is important and, and, and building that. And again, the challenge though is it depends on the types of schools. I mean, we talk about the issues for schools. I mean, you've got everything from uh, 60,000 student public university down to a you know fifty student uh, massage school, so and there and all these rules, these all these you know code sections and regulations apply to them all. So it's it's going to have to be it's you're going to have to look at the school, the size, resources um, to determine who's how do you how do you build that. But the goal would be, I think, is is again to to have a culture, to have regular training, and to have a relationship, and making sure again people know and the organization know who's responsible for those decisions. Another big issue for schools is you know, you know sexual harassment and Title IX and all of those things and making sure that you've got but, but again you know but if I can just jump in that you know the what you've just described is excellent best practice but by the nature of dealing with humans that quit, that um, get fired, that get new hires um, jerk employees that are passive aggressive, um, whistleblower type mentalities. It's such a, uh, a soft dynamic, if you will. Um, and, and yet now there's a, it seems to be this hundred percent compliance. I look at like campus, um, point in Texas, I think that's what the career point, um, they, they went and called and stepped up and did the right thing. And, hammered um so the uh i guess hmm, what really is interesting to me now is there's some teeth in that this borrower defense um uh defense to repayment regs that are now appearing to be you know going to get um put in place um there's a, a quite the penalty to pay if if things aren't going to work out, so what I'd like is I'd, I'd like Chris for you to give a quick overview on, on what appears to be rolling off the presses right now, and then I'd like Jennifer to just speak to what Chris's overview. So, 
Chris, can you speak to the uh, defense to repayment rules that are just yes. coming hot yeah. off the presses? Yes, and, and, and again, this is all presumption based on what the proposed regs were, but based on that and our experiences, this is what we think is going to come off the presses to, literally today or tomorrow. Because um, they have to publish it, it has to be published in the Federal Register by Monday in order for these rules to be effective July 1. And we know the administration wants them to be effective July 1. So having said that, again, borrower defense, it's what we're looking at is a, is a mechanism for students who feel like they were harmed, that they didn't have full information, that their school lied to them or was overly aggressive and, and didn't fulfill their, oblig, you know, their oblig, contractual obligations from an education standpoint, that the students would raise, the borrowers would raise that as a defense to repaying their student loans. There's a very detailed process uh, as far as what it looks like, how the department analyzes it. We don't need to get to the, you know, we could spend the rest of today and tomorrow and all weekend talking about the process. But the idea is generally that the students would file a claim with the department. There's a process where the department reviews it. And if they agree with the student that, yes, that is a valid defense, then the student's loans would be forgiven. Um, unpaid amounts on the loans would be forgiven. Depending on the timing of when they file the claim, if they student had made some payments on that student loan, they might be able to get some of those payments back. And then the department would then turn to the school and say, okay, school, we had to forgive $10,000 of loans because of your bad acts. We want you to give us that $10,000. We're going to take that $10,000 back from you now. So that's one element of it. A couple of other things that are, that are big in here, too, is that they're looking at the financial responsibility test for schools. So there's a lot of obligations for at the school entity level. Uh, as a result of this, schools may have to post letters of credit with the Department of Education and things like that. There are certain disclosures. So under the borrower defense to repayment regulations, if, if your school had to post a letter of credit for financial responsibility or for other reasons with the Department of Education, that probably comes from an admission standpoint, you're going to have to provide this warning notice to any prospective students before they would sign a contract. So that's, you, that's a disclosure item that's going to come as part of this. Um, and then there's also language in here in the, in the proposed regulations that would bar schools from the ability to use uh, pre-dispute arbitration agreements or clauses. I know a lot of schools uh, have arbitration clauses in their enrollment agreements. Those would not be allowed anymore uh, as part of these rules as well. So that's just, that's the kind of the, 60,000 foot overview of some of the high, of some of the things that are included in this next round of regulations. Okay, so um, let's break this down though, because we want to leave some of the folks on the call here with some thought starters, some things to run with. So um, Sh uh, Shane and Jennifer, let's focus on lead gen. So uh, there are potential places where a student could perceive that they've been lied to. We're going to call it that, call a spade, spade a spade. And so one area, uh, and we've seen a couple of examples out in the industry where somebody in the landing pages in their websites uh, have made uh, persuasive claims that typically in advertising are, are called weasel words or ad puffery, which has been an accepted practice. And so, but that's, I know at ER Shane, we pride ourselves in being very fulsome and neutral in in all the the information we put on for our clients. Let's let's explain to the folks, um, and then Jen, you can weigh in here too. Uh, the the path to mitigating this issue that Chris has laid out for us. Hmm. Uh, from like a marketing perspective. Correct. Yeah. Uh, like. Basically, how do we avoid um, just, is there a, a bit of a, a stress test to strip bullshit, I'm going to use that word, out of uh, landing pages in particular so as not to deceive prospective students? Yeah, well, sure, sure there is. And, and so the, in, in copywriting in general, it's a good policy anyway, but it's it's you focus on factual statements. So it, you know things that are that are true and defendable is true, and deal in specifics, not in general generalities. Um, back up employment outcome claims with fact. You know, make sure that you rely, um, you promote 
employment outcomes that are substantiated by actual graduates that are working there, employers that you have, you know, like to deal in a factual manner. Now, the challenge, though, is that as a marketer, you know, our, we've got to hit goals. Right, we have to hit certain lead generation goals. We need to hit certain cost per lead goals. You know, we're we're kind of the 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 start of the engine that keeps this whole machine running. And there's often a disconnect between the marketers and the either the management or the the delivery people. And sometimes there's a disconnect between the marketers and the facts because we it's difficult to get access to them. Or what seems like a benign little change on a landing page. And I'll use an example. Um, you, you know, you add a an employment outcome. Let's say hey, you've got a security guard type program. You know, a security program, and you and you add, hey, you can be a police officer to the landing page because you know that seems like something people would want, and that word police officer would resonate with a portion of the traffic. However, the security program does not really actually lead to a policing career. That's a separate program. Um, it's easy for a copywriter or a marketer to add that, not really knowing it because they're not experts, um, and then create a situation where you, you're now lying inadvertently. And no. so the, 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 you know, we, we try to m- mitigate against that as much as possible by making sure clients review things and, uh, you know, making sure there's scutiny on every word that's written. But it's tough. And well, yeah, that's sure because you know we're we're managing hundreds upon hundreds of landing pages for hundreds of programs, and it's a very dynamic thing at play. If I can just throw one more thing in, which is a a, a mitigator, and that is um, one of the core rules of direct response copywriting is to uh, walk to the flame, meaning that. Um, there are issues and shortcomings in any program or any school, whether it be price, whether it be constraints around the job. And one of the rules of copywriting is that you shed light on those issues. You actually, you know, the, the instinct is to gloss over the negative stuff and butter up the, um, the good stuff. But no, with direct response, you need to go to the flame and bring up these issues and then speak to them and deal with them. And um, and in doing so, what you do is you create a, a balanced approach in communication, which in turn um, takes that promotional spin energy out of the communication. Um, Shane, you, can you speak to that for a second? Then I, we want to hear Jennifer's point of view on this. Yeah, so raising and resolving objections is one way to call it or you know, deal with the unspoken. It's, it's basically deal with the objection or the, the, the thing that the consumer is more, more than likely thinking about. The other uh, kind of point on all this I'll mention is that marketers also tend to be like opposite of attorneys, whereas attorneys are careful yeah. and, and, you know, you're like, the attorneys are super boring to marketers. No offense to Chris and Jen. Well, we're called the anti-sales department, so I get it. <laughs> I used to be called the dream killer. <laughs> yeah. There, there you go. go. Crusher of dreams. That's right. And it's, you know, as much as I like you both, yeah, you suck. You're a pain in the butt because <laughs> it's hard to sell things, right? It, you know, it is. It's hard to find an effective way to sell something, and it's a lot of work and a and there's a lot of trial and error, and it's and there's big stakes in the game, right? Because if you can't get leads, there's no way of generating business. If your cost per lead is too high, economically it doesn't work. And so this balance is a difficult thing to find right now. I think the balance is uh, that we just have to tell everybody that we work with that they have to lower their expectations and... Um, Suck it up. So, Jen. Um, think, uh, yeah, and l- let me. And I think maybe that's where I'll jump in because I know um, we do get called game killers, and you know we're always thinking about what we look at the new cool thing you're doing, and we love it too. And we also think like um, a jury and a judge because we have to on behalf of our clients and say, I know that what uh, an attorney is going to do, they're going to sit here 
and they're going to bring all these statistics up in your in your face, and you're going to have 15 students that they didn't apply to, and it's going to cost you $10 million. No, you're not going to put that ad up. So that's sort of the snap judgments that we have to make, and I'd rather say no 15 times a day, and yes on something I know is really solid. But, you know, let's take borrower repayment. Let's take all these, you know, all these big rules, gainful employment, all the disclosures, all of these things. These things became law because of very, very tiny mistakes because somebody didn't say no enough. Um, you know, take uh, the, this massive DeVry lawsuit where they just had one campaign where they said for the last 40 years we've been placing X amount of students, right? And it seems like a great thing to say and they're tooting their own horn. And then you've got one guy who said, really? Is that really the truth? And went back 40 years or whatever it was and showed that that was in fact not the truth. So so when we look at all these massive regulations that come down on us, it's because somebody just put a couple of stupid words in something. Now, yeah, sometimes the schools get closed down because of financial irresponsibility. And I think that's been the case in a couple of recent school closures. But in every in every case that's not true. It's just us being a little too creative or a little too excited about the way we describe a program or a placement rate. So, yeah, so co- a copywriter gets excited the manager manager misses it, and a star, starving lawyer jumps on it and yeah. uh, proceeds and to pound the school. And, and we have enough bad PR that it doesn't take a whole lot to get dragged into court right now. Um, so, but now you've got things where you can you can flag inflammatory words, and we oh, have yeah. our copywriting filters and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. But really, now where this gets really crazy is in the social media side oh, of things. Yeah. Like because social media Well yeah. So Tom, Tom, you there? Yeah, you I'm here. Yeah. Social media really is uh an exercise in branding. And really branding is all about well Shane and I have a comment branding is for cows, right? But like, you know, like social media really is you know whatever. And yet and people will go and and say all kinds of crazy things on facebook and and oh man you know you could get in so much trouble having somebody who's like an outsider go and say something crazy and then the flip side are is all is all of the these people that start putting up these half truth complaints about you on google plus and yelp and stuff which is uh, what I, I lovingly call internet herpes because those complaints cannot <laughs> ever go away. Tom, help us out. Talk about this regulatory, all these regulatory people, I was going to say pinheads, um, descending on the, the good social media work these schools are trying to do. Tom, what's your point of view on this? So, well, and, and Jen, I think Jen can address some of this too. She had a, a great, uh, a great piece she did on it at the conference we were at the, in Lexington. And you've got to make sure that you're, you've got a policy at, to who can post, um, that it's controlled by the school and that you don't have your staff all running around posting willy nilly. Um, you know, they, you've got to control at least the best you can your staff. Uh, and what goes up there, and that you don't turn a Facebook post into an ad without the proper disclosures, uh, so mm-hmm. that there's at least a central point of contact for your social media. Yes, you can't control what outside people are going to say and do, uh, but there is a method to handle those poor reviews and how to address those properly uh, to at least minimize and remove uh, you know, as much as you, as, as you can out there, but uh, it's really got to be a, a policy within your school as to who, who has access to those social media platforms, what they post, how they post, uh, and do they know all of the, uh, and I know, you know, Jen can even speak to ADA compliance on your, on your Facebook and, and other things, uh, as well, but you can't get in, in using them for advertising. So having that plan, having a, a person in charge and having at least, uh, a policy that you can try to follow and within mm-hmm. your organization, outside of your organization, very difficult to handle those people, um, you know, that are going to post those things and get a little bit, you know, go past the edge. But you, you can control your staff. Right. And I'll, I'll add one takeaway to that. 
because um, I I know I don't want to just say don't post on social media without a disclosure. You can. Uh, here's here's uh, one differentiator, and you can take this one to the bank after the after the call. Um, if you if you talk about your school, if you say come to school here, it's great. You don't need a disclosure. You're fine. You can post that all day long. If you post on your Facebook page, come check out our massage program. You'll love it. You have to have your marketing disclosure in there for more information about disclosure rates and employment, yada, 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 you know, the the phrase I'm talking about. That has to be listed on that particular post, on that status update. Um, I've seen some creative stuff. Yeah. Oh, sorry, I just want to clarify. Uh, so, if it's if it's program specific in any way, mm-hmm. that warrants a disclosure. If it's just the brand specific, say the school, you don't have to. Correct. Yes. Oh, interesting. And I, you I know, see it all the time I, uh, with most of the clients that, that you know, a lot of people that we deal with, and a lot of people that we evaluate, um, they're they're not following those types of policies. Well, I have one word for this. I have one word for this uh, panel, and that is buzzkill. I mean, (laughs) you know, you have your testimonial up there now, and you have to have a disclaimer about that. And then you have to create your websites for visually impaired people. Now, where is the insanity in having, uh, you know, um, ADA uh, inputs in your website like a visually impaired person on a phlebotomy page, like let's get real, hey? It's just it's just getting too far here. It's getting ridiculous. Um, I spent an hour and a half talking to a group here about the same stuff, and they all just looked at me like I was crazy. I said, I know it. <laughs> it sounds crazy, but you have to do it. Sure. And so, and look, Jane, would you? I, yeah, and just to, in, in case anybody doesn't know, ADA is Americans for Disability Act, and there's been. Um, some letters going out from some attorneys uh, targeting schools saying, hey, you're not in compliance with ADA regulations and, you know, trying, basically trying to shake them down for money. Mm-hmm. And, Jen, you've got and a Shane, lot of... Shane, uh, Greg here, ADA, explain ADA again, please. American for Disabilities Act. It means that the website has to be uh, um, accessible to people with the vi- visual disabilities, uh, hearing disabilities. I don't know if there's other ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's yet so another Shane, thing. I, now, I, it is a federal regulation that's not specific to the school industry, but because right. schools take money from the federal government by way of Title IV, therefore they have to be in compliant with it. Is that correct? That's correct. Shane, I have a question for you. Would you allow a a visually impaired phlebotomist to draw blood from your arm? No. As a a, a consumer, uh, I wouldn't prefer it, no. Well, so my point being is that, you know, a lot of these laws um, are just so ingrained yet flawed or lacking common sense and 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 people like Chris you you must just roll your eyes at times I mean well yeah and it is crazy and you but you mentioned the case of a, of a blind phlebotomist I mean but there was a school in a, a chiropractic school in Iowa a couple of years ago that was found to uh, there was a blind chiropractic student and the school denied him the opportunity to continue his education and the student sued and the student won. Um, so I can go, again, I can spend and go through the reasons why uh, and, and, and all of that. And if anybody's interested, I can send you the case. So, yeah, uh, you can't just, it may look ridiculous on its face, but you can't just say that, well, no, of course not. I mean, you can't just say, well, of course we're not going to have a blind a phlebotomist student, but you can't just say that. You have to do your homework and you have to document. If you say no, you hear the reasons why you said no, um, and that they're verifiable. So, if it's okay, your so crediting agency won't allow it, you need to contact your crediting agency and have documentation that they told you that they would, you know, that you'd be violating your program or your requirements or licensing or what have you. You know, you've got to have a file for it. Okay, so I'm going to shift topics now 
to something that's a, a real exposure for schools, and that is um, admissions staff not only flagging, you know, compliance issues, but also going against their natural instincts as admissions people, which are to persuade, promote, you know, they're trying to help people get a new life through a new career plan and they're excited and they want to help them reestablish and reset their career path. And there's this kind of expansive promotional energy that they attach words to, which if they're not careful can wipe a school out. Mm-hmm. And, um, and you know, the, the, this Tom, this is a question for you. The, the natural, um, the natural first line of defense is, oh, you need to train, 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 train. But Tom, we, we both know that only 10% of sales training or admissions training, um, if you wish to sanitize the term, uh, is, um, is um, retained. So, you know, using that approach, is, there's a real crapshoot relying on the human element to protect the school from being hammered by a crazy person. Uh, do you care to expand? Right, and uh, you know, I think you, you you said it a couple of times, but they're sanitizing really the the way admissions has, is, is is being run, and you've got salespeople, uh, and really that's what admissions people are. They are salespeople, and that you know they're they're there to help persuade and hopefully coach the right people into uh, you know a career field or a product that will best fit their needs. Uh, but you're you're also telling them that they can't do this, 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 and, and the other, uh, making it very difficult to a on the hiring side to bring those people in. As you mentioned, you can train, but they if they don't do it in practice uh, all the time, and being able to monitor what they're doing. So you you really have to bring in a defined set of scripting and force discipline products uh, to ensure that. Uh, you know, they really go down the um, the list and follow the script, you know, per- precisely anymore without drifting one way or the other uh, in order to not lose your school. So they, you're going to get to a point where there's not going to be a choice um, as to whether there's going to be a forced discipline um, program in place, and you may not be hiring, and I think that the admissions person is not the same now and won't be in the next two to three years that you have hired for the last five to ten. It is a whole different uh, set of, uh, a whole different skill set that you're going to bring in because they're really just going to have to follow a pretty defined plan. And unfortunately, the personal touch um, they'll try to bring into, but they will not be able to use some of the sales tools and tactics of the past. So um, really, the the theme um, with admissions reps is, while training may help to mitigate to a degree, it's no by no means a solution. And that going forward, um, having people using a forced uh, best practice, forced discipline best practice, um, whether it's hard copy or it's online like our Sherpa product or what have you, the, the theme is, um, it, folks, here's the tip is you need to have a forced discipline best practice uh, process that admissions reps need to follow. It needs to be um, put into the job description and um, that with the employment contract, people need to understand that if they don't follow this best practice forced discipline, 100% of the time, it's cause for dismissal with cause. Chris, do you care to speak to that? Well, I think I, I think you're right, and, and I think it's 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 making sure that you control the message, and there, there's the education piece, there's controlling the message, and there's also having a process in place to track that and to test that, and to make sure that uh, that your your staff is doing what they've been trained to do and what they're you know, what they've been scripted to say. So uh, now, just along those lines, so if if you're on probation with gainful employment and you have to put all these um, these things, you know, it'd be like going on a date and having to tell somebody in the first five minutes, 
that you've been in prison. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, having to put all this probationary material for gainful employment on your websites and promotional material and your admissions reps. Whoa, that's a downer. I How do like admissions reps? Women who would be who would be into hearing that you just got out of prison. <laughs> <laughs> so how how but how do you as from an admissions perspective, when questions come up about oh your gainful employment ratios are way too high or oh you know this this regulatory issue that regulatory issue I read about online, how do admissions reps deal with this, Chris? I mean. They could just be burrowing themselves into a heap of trouble by saying the wrong yeah, thing. Well, well, and that's where the scripting comes in, and, and the training comes in, because you know that's something where if your school hasn't done it yet, you should be thinking about now. I mean, what are we going to tell a student if they come in and say, "I'm interested in your school, but I'm reading about all these schools closing." Um, you know, are you going to close while I'm enrolled here? And what you can say and what you can't say. And we did, so I mentioned it earlier, sticking to the facts, and that's very important, uh, obviously. Uh, and, and not saying, oh, you know, if, if, and also with disclaimers on that. So thinking about how, what, whatever, what information you're going to give with what type of, you know, disclaimers that you're going to put on that to say, you know, yes, we've, you know, we, we've passed our financial ratios. The Department measures financial ratios. We, we passed those in our last measuring period, but, you know, just like you see on every commercial for financial companies, past performance is not an indicative is not indicative of future performance. So that's you know we can't promise anything. We can just tell you where we've been. Um, but but thinking about how you're going to present that information, because yeah, mm. and again it gets to training and gets to messaging. Because the other issue is with the with these new borrower defense to repayment regulations. One of the provisions that we expect to be in here is, a re- is changing the definition of a misrepresentation to not only include statements that are misleading uh, or, or untrue, but the omission of any statements that would cause the, the representation in the whole to be misleading or untrue. So, you know, oh, you lying by omission. Right. So again, if somebody asks you about your financial position or you know how, how's the school doing, and you say, well, we passed our financial ratio. The last time it was measured, but that last, you know, given the how long it, you only get measured once a year, you have six months to do an audit. That last measuring period could have been 15 months ago. And a lot could have changed between 15 months, and you may have some information that says you know you're not as good today as you were 15 months ago. But hey, you're you know the la- the last audit that you had and the last composite score that your school submitted to the federal de- uh, the, the Department of Education was passing so you know is that misleading if you don't tell somebody that oh but by the way since then you know all hell's broken loose okay so question here's a, an example there's a person who comes in to a cosmetology school and they are um, uh, large and there's a distinct possibility that these people cannot stand on their feet for eight hours a day or somebody with a respiratory infection could not work in an environment in a cosmetology in a, in, in a beauty shop because of the, the bleach, the fumes. Now, uh, if you know that, if you know that that's a mitigating factor to a career, a uh, successful career, are you liable for omitting that information or that opinion? That's an excellent question. You should be a law professor. Um, you can, <laughs> as far as I think, what you are you required to disclose that? I mean, there are certain things. So for you know, for cosmetology schools, I mean, you know, you're supposed to you know, certain pre-enrollment information and some of the skill sets and, and job demands. So I mean, that may be something that's covered mm-hmm. under uh, under job demands. And so that's something where you, there should be some education. And I think if you, if a student now. This gets into the whole thing too. You may look at a student who, or a prospective student who comes in. You might think those are issues, but if that student doesn't say, "I have those issues," this is going back to ADA. You can't ask him about it. So, for the student to bring those issues up and to ask for accommodations, if they, if they have an issue that they think they might need an accommodation for from an education standpoint, it's up to the student in a post-secondary school to to make that request. I know exactly what you're talking about. My my wife Cindy, she said, "Do I look ugly in this brown dress?" Man, I'm I'm hooped either way, right? If I don't say anything, I'm 
hooped if I do. I'm hooped. Yeah, I totally, I get it. Right. right. I've and got a question. Be... So go ahead, oh. Jane. Okay, so is if if I have all my systems buttoned down, there's there's written scripts for the reps, there's a process they follow, there's training in place, and one of my admissions people still goes off script and causes a problem for me, is that a defense? If I if I can demonstrate that hey, there's process that exists and this individual went off it, is that does that save me? I can't speak definitively. I would like to think, and I would ex- I would expect and like to think that that would be a mitigating factor because you can't control 100% of the people 100% of the time. What they're going to look at from an in- again, what they what I believe they'll look at what they should look at is from an institutional standpoint. You know, did you do all the things that you were supposed to do? And once you found out that it wasn't being done the way it was supposed to do, how fast you know did you correct it or did you let it slide? So, Chris, if I was the lawyer for the uh, student, I would say, no, no, it's managerial negligence on the part of the um, director of admissions. That well, there's, director of well, there's there's two di- there's two different elements there. Right? I mean, there's the element if you're if you're representing a student, I'm looking at from the standpoint of from the standpoint of you know as far as sanctions against the school, um, you know if there's harm if there's harm to the individual student, they're going to press that and they're going to press and try to hold the school accountable for that. For their the bad actions of their of their employee. Okay, so so really, okay to to wrap this up, you guys. Um, there are processes, there are scripts. There, everyone on this panel have best practice force disciplines that they can offer schools, and you know we'll be um, offering freebies and trials to anybody interested in pursuing that. You just call one of us and we'll help you. But once people hang up from this phone call or listen to this uh, at a later date, um, I, I guess really from my perspective, folks, if there's just if you had to go out and create an action, I would say you create a memo, you call meetings, and you say just do not BS people in written form or verbally for any reason whatsoever. And if you do, it's grounds for moving on. Or some language to that effect, some kind of a policy statement that just is an overriding policy statement. Jen, is that too harsh? Or is that, like if people were to do one single thing after leaving this call, would that be it? or To create an internal policy? I mean, I'm a flag waiver for that. Everybody has to. If everybody's not running from the same set of rules and it's clear to every person that if this happens, then this happens, and there's a policy across the board, man, yeah, you rarely go wrong. And and that's with social media, with admissions, uh, with, I mean, with every single thing you do, there must be a written policy. Um, and when you deviate from it, you notate why. Got it. So it's a mitigator, as Chris said. It's a, a bit of a mitigator in terms of your school. That could be an immediate thing you could do, you know, in the next two hours. So, so now listen, folks. It's it's almost an hour. We've we've just um, stayed in t- inside our time budget. There's two things that we're going to offer today. Is um, we have a um, a mystery shop that we do. Um, if you want insight into the behavior of your admissions reps. And the first five people that text in their name and number uh, to this number, uh, we'll put you in the queue between now and Christmas to give you a complimentary mystery shop. And uh, here's the text. Here's the number, folks. It's 250-588-6931. That's 250-588-6931. And the first five people that jump in can get that as a for hanging out and that's a kind of a relationship starter for us um, now what we're going to do is we're going to um, break off formally and um, if anybody from here on in has any informal questions for these very intelligent people here um, the uh, just press star six 
Uh, I guess before we do that, um, Jen and Chris, why don't you just share your, uh, your, either your email address or your phone number um, so that if somebody wants to get a hold of you guys, they can do so. So Jennifer, why don't we start with you? Sure. I'm Jennifer Flood. I am the CEO of National Compliance Group. Um, you can find my web address at that, um, nationalcompliancegroup.com. And my email address is jflood, flood like a lot of water, at nationalcompliancegroup.com. Phone number 620-504-2058. Excellent. And Chris, yourself? Yes, uh, so Chris DeLuca, and I'm with DeLuca Law, LLC. That's D as in David, E-L-U-C-A. And the website is just simply DeLucaLawLLC.com. My email is Chris at DeLucaLawLLC.com. And if you want to reach me by phone, you can do so at 513-401-8977. Excellent, excellent. Tom, you work with us, so uh, folks can get a hold of you uh, through enrollment resources. And, uh, and uh, so now uh, we're going to say formally goodbye to everybody. And if any, anybody wants to uh, lag behind and ask a question informally of the panel, all you have to do is press star six on your phone and you will be able to join the conference call with us. For those that are leaving, uh, we hope you guys have learned some things and got some thought starters going and uh, that we've helped you out and, you know, go fight the good fight. Uh, for those that are staying behind, just again, press star six if you're interested in asking a question. We'll wait around for a minute or so. Hi, uh, my name is Heather and I work with Ocean Psychology Beauty. And I had a quick question regarding um, clarification on the advertising. Okay, uh, Shane, okay. why don't you take that call? Sure. Hi. So, so, hey, go ahead. Uh, my question is, um, I understood um, when Jennifer stated the difference between um, specifying a program versus advertising the school. Um, at our school, we have just the one program. So would that still be in effect for us or it it wouldn't really wouldn't really have any bearing on it. Do you want me to give the oh. uh the short answer? Uh, sure. <laughs> the the short default answer is when in doubt add a disclosure. Right? Okay. So okay. so can I say specifically um that you're trying to suggest a program since your school is the program? Um, you know, it's arguable either way. How much money do you want to spend to prove it? <laughs> that's, okay, that's the easy way to think about it. Um, so, so just generally, our school. But anytime there's a um, specific um, comment um, about cosmetology, um, then that's when we should put the disclosure in, just to be safe. Right. Okay. Alrighty. Good. Thank you. I think that was it. Thank you so much uh, for your time, everyone. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for coming in. Okay, bye-bye. Is there anybody else that wants to uh, add in? Uh, Yeah, Greg, hey, this is uh, Stephen Dawson, Kenneth Schuller Schools. Hey, Stephen, how are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, First of all, I want to thank the entire panel. Um, Lots of interesting insight, of course. But uh, a little birdie told me that we can no longer use the Bureau of Labor and Statistics data is that truly the case? Oh my! Um, so that would be for—I don't know. I always thought you could, but Jennifer or Chris, have you come across that? I mean, maybe I'll defer to Chris because I haven't heard that. I've heard hmm. that you have to use that if you're studying. Yeah, I, I would have to echo that sentiment. I'm not. Yeah, I, I've not heard. I've not heard anything. About that, I know you can't use. I mean, I know that there's been talk of BLF as it relates to gainful employment. Is that an alternative? I mean, that's obviously not the regulation right now, but I haven't heard about it um, other than that. Can you give that. us some context, maybe? Um, uh, yeah, the, the 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 context would have been the, the growth projections of our industry. You know, I'll just jump in. I, you know, ONET, uh, Department of Labor Statistics, are very thorough. 
And, you know, my, my thinking is something along the lines of, would the Department of Education sue the Department of Labor? To me, that seems like an insane premise. Or, I wouldn't put yeah. it past them, Greg. That's insane. <laughs> Um, so I, all right. here, here's here's how here's our understanding, and you know I feel foolish, but uh, it's got to be state specific. So your your Kenneth Schuler operates in um, uh, North Carolina, correct? South, south. Sorry, okay. South Carolina. So you, if you if you um, are citing national statistics, that could be construed as misleading. If they're, if they're not reflective of your state. So it's got to be South Carolina statistics to really be defendable. Unless you, you went and stated, okay, these are national statistics, and throw a little disclaimer on there for the mouth breathers that can't yeah. really discern it for themselves, you know. Um, so no, not much help on that one, I don't think, there, Stephen. I'm sorry. No, no, I, I mean, if... Disclaimer, disclaimer, disclaimer. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. All right, then. Uh, anybody else have a question for our panel? Okay. I do. I think we're done. Oh, wait. Here we go. Well, I have, anybody? Uh, Shane, has, Shane has one. Go ahead. So just, and, and I, I don't believe either Jen or Chris are going to answer this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If I roll, if I run through the, the various people that we have to accommodate, on a scale of 1 to 10, what is the risk factor? So we'll call the Department of Education a 10 out of 10, you know, as is the barometer. So how, how much risk does complying with state regulations, uh, you know, what's the risk level on a scale of 1 to 10? Jen. Oh, man, I was waiting for Chris. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, it's sort of... What, what's that phrase, six of one, half a dozen of the other? So, okay, sure, you want to, you serve your large I want a number of, I don't want to yeah, remember. I think another version of this question might be, uh, what are the odds of a school satisfying all the regulators that are nipping at their heels? Is it like 10%, 20%, 50%? Are they going to, by my way of thinking, there's six regulators you have to please. You're bound to screw up with one of them. Um, yeah, you're right. But People do screw up. Right. And, and I don't think that schools get into a whole heap of trouble by screwing up on occasion. People screw up, right? It's a, We're alive. <laughs> but if you have, right. you know, a, a culture about your business, that creates, um, you know, checks and balances, and you always want to do the right thing, and, you know, you're always um, checking with the right people, you're going to slip no matter what. But if you have a consistency over time that shows that you either repair things when you find them or you make your best effort to always uh, comply when you can, uh, you know, your life is so much easier. Um so, it's, when you, it's when you try to skirt things consistently and find your loopholes and find the exception, uh, those people get burned, and they get burned every time. Yeah. So the key is to have an active mitigation strategy and to show these accrediting peoples and regulators your strategies in a proactive manner to show that you're, you're trying. Would that yeah. be a fair comment? Absolutely. And when in doubt, yeah. ask. ask. Got it. Ask. And, and he, I'm going to give an example, and, and, and it's actually a presentation that I've given at a couple of different conferences, and it's titled, Who's Your 504 Coordinator? And the reason I titled it is because in 504 is analogous to the ADA. It's about mm -hmm. accommodations for students at, at your school. And the reason I, I titled it that is because I worked with a school that got a letter from the Office for Civil Rights saying that a student had filed a complaint about that school not accommodating her, and the first question was on the list of, of things that the, that the OCR wanted was, uh, was the first question was who's your who's your who's your 504 coordinator? And the school was like, what's a 504 coordinator? Um, so, but getting to the end of it, when this, so they did an investigation and they realized that okay, the school didn't have a 504 coordinator designated, but they did everything right. 
um, and they treated the student right. They did all the right things. So, yeah, there was, they had to update their policy. They had to appoint a Title 504 coordinator. They had to do a training with the department. But it was very, you know, but you know, the department, now whether they would, you know, this was a couple of years ago, whether the department would treat people rationally given the current state of things, whether they would do that uh, today. But it was just an experience of, again, the school doing the right thing to, uh, the point made earlier of having a system in place and doing the right things, even if they don't even know that it's formally what they're supposed to be doing. Huh, okay. Interesting. Any other questions? Good. No. I think we're done. So, uh, hey, uh, you guys are smart. You guys are awesome. And uh, we're going to do this again uh, next year in the first half of the year. We'll invite you guys back. Hopefully you'll be free to weigh in. This podcast is brought to you by Enrollment Resources, Innovations in Enrollment Management. Learn more at enrollmentresources.com.